0: now and forever. Amen. Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm 77. We'll stand in just a moment for the reading of God's Word, but it's Psalm 77, verses 7 through 9, page 488 in the Black Bibles around you. I'll give you a moment to find that. And as you find that, if you'll uh, stand as you're able, and I'm going to read just these three verses as we come toward an end of our series called the, the Story of Steadfast Love. We've looked at God's covenant, steadfast, never-ending, never-failing love throughout the month, and in one sense, these words might stand out in stark contrast uh, to what we've shared thus far in this series, looking at uh, the Old Testament, but I think capture some of the heart of the Advent season, the longing. So, hear God's word as it's read to you. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he, in anger, Shut up his compassion. This is God's word for us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will never fail. Uh, You may be seated. And God, would you bless and add your understanding to the reading and now preaching of your holy word? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, this is a season full of music, is it not? Uh, wherever you go, songs are being played, uh, both sort of traditional Christmas hymns and, and more uh, cultural uh, songs as well, this Christmas time. And I want to argue that Christmas songs as a whole, all of it mixed together, when you take them as sort of a corpus, a genre, taken together, present a realistic taste of life in this world. Uh, when you take the Uh, The holly jolly songs, and when you take the more melancholy songs that we see this time of year, uh, we see life and loss and joy and regret and nostalgia and all of it. For every lyric like this, it's the most wonderful time of the year. With kids jingle belling and everyone telling you to be of good cheer. For every song like that, uh, there's a song like this. A Christmas Eve will find me, where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas. And you know the last line. If only in my dreams. It has a real melancholy note, doesn't it? Someone who's not home, who longs to be, and isn't. Or another Christmas song that you might have heard on the radio or on your Spotify playlist. Someday all our dreams will come true. Someday in a world where men are free. But maybe not in time for you and for me, but someday, at Christmas time. Do you hear the longing? And it's, and it's not just the maybe more cultural songs that we hear, uh, but even our Christian hymns. For every joy to the world, the Lord is come. There's "O come, O come, Emmanuel," and "Ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here, until the Son of God appear." Even in our own hymnal, there's a mix of songs in the major key and the minor key around this time of year, and they kind of come one after another. Even, and I think that reflects something about life in this fallen world, even the most wonderful time of year can carry with it a weight that we cannot shake. Even moments of joy can be attended with a weariness, with an ache, with what some have called a sorrow full of joy all mixed together. And really the Christian tradition of Advent um, sort of captures both of these. This uh, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Our hymns in the major and minor key. Our longing. And Psalm 77, 7-9, I think is a visceral example of the minor key. Of a question that is being asked that is gut-wrenching. Uh, from the psalmist, from Asaph, the psalmist. And this morning, I want to show you that this question, these, this one little example, verses 7 through 9, is neither unusual in the Bible, nor is it unfaithful. And if you find yourself this morning resonating more with the minor key, finding it hard to muddle through the onslaught of peace, joy, and jolly, uh, then you might be in good company. If we look at the biblical example We'll look briefly together then at how God answers this question, but we want to look very briefly at three things. Number one, the question itself, verses 7 through 9, what is this question being asked? Am I allowed to ask it? Uh, Number two, the questioners. Have there been others throughout the Bible who asked this kind of question? And number three, the answer, right? Where do we go from here if we find ourselves resonating with this question? Uh, So first, the question itself. Let's look at the text. This is a psalm of Asaph. Uh, We're probably more used to psalms of David. Uh, There's a few psalms of Asaph in this section of scripture. Uh, He would have been helping, uh, 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 perhaps in the time of David, perhaps soon after, into the temple period. But he's writing this psalm, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And of course, we could take the whole, the psalm as a whole, but let's look at these few verses here. And would you see the weight of this question? It'd be Easy to gloss over it. I'm sure in my own reading plans, I just you know, plowed through Psalm 77 and maybe didn't give it a, a second thought. But hear the weight in the psalmist's words. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Will the Lord spurn forever? Will he uh, reject me? Will he send me away? Will he never again Be favorable to me? Do you hear the weight in that question for the psalmist? Certainly, we we know what this feels like on a relational level. Maybe this time of year, unfortunately, as we start to rub shoulders with people we haven't seen in quite some time. And uh, sometimes, maybe unexpectedly, you, you see someone and you're expecting a big warm hug, and instead you get the cold shoulder. And they don't really have to say anything for you to know, whoa. Something's not right here. I am not in the favor of this person. I don't know why. Uh, It's probably, of course, it's their fault, but uh, you know what that feels like. Uh, But think of the psalmist who's, who's praying, he's singing to the Lord, and he's saying, my experience right now, it seems as if the Lord is disfavorable to me, that he's displeased with me, that the God of the universe is giving me the cold shoulder. Can you feel the weight of that? And he uses this word uh, forever. Will the Lord spurn forever? Will he never again be favorable? You know, we're used to those words more in the positive context, like Psalm 30, verse 12, we look to that Thanksgiving weekend, I will give thanks to the Lord forever. Or Psalm 23, 6, I will dwell in the courts of the Lord forever, never ending. In fact, we've talked about his steadfast love is Never ending. But here he's saying, will the Lord's disfavor be upon me forever? Will he never again be favorable? Again, we, we know that rightly in, in interpersonal relationships, uh, we are told to never use the terms never, always, you know, you never take out the trash. Um, you are always mean to me. Because what does that do? It puts the other person on the defense and gives them an easy argument. Well, Yeah, I do that sometimes, but I don't always do it, right? So interpersonally, we're sort of careful with our language, but the psalmist isn't being careful with his language Um, in the sense that he is pouring out his heart before the Lord and saying, Lord, from my experience, it seems as if you have spurned me forever, that you will never again be favorable to me. People of God, have you ever prayed like that? Or friend, did you know (laughs) that the Bible has examples like this, that you could pray like this? If, if you have, then you're in good company. But look at verse eight. That really gets to the heart of it. Has his steadfast love forever, there's that word again, forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? For all time. Again, we've been looking at this theme of the steadfast love of the Lord, and we've said that it's his covenant love. His promised love, it will never end, it will never fail. And we looked at Genesis 3.15, this promise right at the beginning of Scripture that there will be a people of God for all time, and from that people there will come a Son who will save them. Oh, We looked at 2 Samuel 7, that David, this king, and God gives him promises like this. Uh, 2 Samuel 7.10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Or later in that same chapter, uh, he talks about a son of David. Uh, He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. These are the kind of promises that attend to the steadfast love of the Lord and the very thing that the psalmist is saying okay, I know that, Lord, but there's enemies all around, or I I know that, Lord, or if if you think of God's people singing this psalm as they would have throughout different parts of uh, of the history of God's people. um, At each point, you could think, what would it look like for them to be asking, Lord, I know your promises, and I know what I'm experiencing, uh, this darkness that won't lift, these enemies that are all around, and something's not matching up. Has the steadfast love Of the Lord failed? Are his promises at an end for all time? I think God's people have asked questions like this, honestly, praying to the Lord uh, throughout Israel's history. In your bulletin, you could see a a small, hopefully you can read it, uh, Old Testament overview outline as we've been thinking about God's people in the Old Testament leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ. I want to argue that this psalm, certainly written later in their history, but these kinds of words were not unusual. You think of the Exodus and God bringing his people out of Egypt, and yet they sinned and they had to be in the wilderness for 40 years. And yet Moses, who brought them out of Egypt, never got to go into the promised land. He had to watch on from a distance. And if you look at Moses' words and prayers, you see similar language. Lord, if you don't go with us, then what are we doing? We need your steadfast love. We need you with us. Uh, And then you go to the land, the promised land of Canaan. Uh, In one sense, you have a major key. Uh, You have songs being sung. You have victories being won where God's people go in and take the land. And yet for every time in the book of Joshua, when it says God fulfilled all the promises, he gave all the land to the people, you get to the book of Judges and you realize the people weren't, fully faithful. They didn't fully drive out the land. And so the book of Judges is, is really this minor and major key, uh, just back and forth. A, a good judge will come and deliver the people. A bad judge will rise up and build altars to foreign gods. And you have that refrain throughout the book of Judges. They did what was, whatever they wanted, essentially, because there was no king in Israel. Uh, it was really chaos as people did whatever they wanted. So the faithful at the time would look around and say, Lord, you said there will always be a people. You said from your people would come a son that would change everything. But I'm looking around and saying, what's happening here, Lord? And then you have David given to God's people, this really this high point in the history of God's people. And yet we talked about a few weeks ago that even David was not a perfect king. Even David sinned grievously. Uh, even in David's time, there were still enemies from within and from without, and God's people could have easily asked, Lord, where are you? Are you fulfilling your promises? Has your steadfast love failed or not? And then if you keep going past this psalm into uh, uh, what to us is past, to them was future, you, you have the kingdom divided in 930 BC, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, And imagine God's faithful people saying, wait a minute, Lord, you said there would always be a line, and now we know it's this line of David, but now the kingdom's divided. There's two kings in Israel, and some of them are good, some of them are bad, mostly bad. What's going on here, Lord? And that would be ratcheted up in the exile as Assyria takes the northern kingdom in 722, and then Babylon comes in and sweeps through the southern kingdom. Uh, in 586 bc you know close to 600 years before christ would come and the people spend decades in exile and even when they return it's it's not like they return and there's a king and they build a temple but it's not what it was people are weeping at the side of the temple that no king is on the throne and so you can imagine god's people and you see throughout the prophets people asking Has the steadfast love of the Lord forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? And really, this Advent season captures that as God's people longed for the coming of Christ. As they looked back on the promises of a people, of a son, of a kingdom, and they looked around and it seemed like none of that was coming to fruition. We know all the way up into the New Testament. If you look at Luke 1 and 2, you have people who were who longing, who were waiting, who were watching for the coming of Christ. This question that the psalmist asked is neither unusual or unique, and neither is it unfaithful as he brings this question to the Lord. But you could see in verse 9, it, it, it gets just a step deeper. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he, in anger, has shut up his compassion? He gets right at the character of who God is. God is, when God revealed himself to Moses and the people, he said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I don't know what the psalmist was going through in God's people at this time. We could think of those other points in the history, but have, have you been through something that causes you to pray like this? If if you would dare to pray so honestly before the Lord? God has revealed Himself to be merciful and gracious, but the psalmist is saying, has his anger sort of overpowered his compassion? Swallowed it up so that he has forgotten to be merciful friend, if you've asked this kind of question, then you are in good company. Let's look now to the questioners. This is the question, the weight of it, but let's look at, especially, we'll look at one example of a questioner found in the book of the prophets. The book of Lamentations is written by Jeremiah, who is called the weeping prophet, and he wrote the book of Lamentations in response to the fall of Jerusalem as, as Babylon swept through. Um, I, mean, I mean, imagine God said that he would dwell with his people, especially in the temple in Jerusalem. And now foreign armies have come through, destroyed the temple, taken all the gold, all the, um, uh, the table, the lampstand, all of it uh, to their own foreign temples. And... Jeremiah writes this book of Lamentation, and it's devastating in its morbid beauty. It's actually very structured. Chapters 1 through 4 are very structured. Uh, every letter of the Hebrew alphabet gets a different line in Hebrew. And so he, he's describing these grotesque realities of what happened, but it's in this beautiful form. But he gets to chapter 5, and the form goes away. It goes away. Perhaps you've been at a funeral where we need that form, don't we, in a funeral? We need it to carry us along because we don't know what to say. We don't know what to pray. We don't know what to sing. But sometimes there's those raw moments in a funeral where someone shares their heart and the form sort of goes away. And here's what Jeremiah says. This is how the book of Lamentations ends. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And that's how the book ends. Is that not striking? Christian, have you ever prayed prayers like this? Uh, Christian, have you ever known that you were allowed to pray prayers like this? I think of our young people especially, if, if you've gotten the impression being in our church that you're not allowed to pray like this, that if you have questions, just stuff them down, that to be a Christian means that, and, and to be faithful means that you, you never think of questions. You never think of God's promises and, and the brokenness of this world and, and have that tension of how do these fit and what does it mean for me to be faithful and I want to trust the Lord but I'm feeling weak if you have gotten that from us, I'm sorry. I know I've been part of Christian traditions where I think unintentionally sort of said that to be a Christian is to be holy, jolly, all the time. And how wearying that is for weary souls, is it not? And that's not the testimony of Scripture. Look at Lamentations that we just looked at, how it ends. Look at Psalm 77. Uh, think of Psalm 13 How long, O Lord? Will you forgive me forever? And then he dares to say, how long again? How long will you hide your face from me? And you think, okay, that's enough, psalmist. Number three, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Okay, psalmist, that's good. Number four, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Scripture invites us to pray in this way, Lord, if you do not show up, I will die. If you do not show up with your steadfast love, I can't go on. Did you know that you could pray like that? And have you prayed like that when a sudden loss in your life caused you to ask whether his compassion had been shut up forever or a diagnosis made you wonder whether his promises were at an end for all time or whether a long drawn out trudging period of darkness what some have called a a dark night of the soul just won't lift and you say I'm praying I'm reading I'm struggling and and it just won't lift (laughs) if so you are in good company Saints throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, saints in the early church, and indeed Christ himself. Just as Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, Christ came as the suffering servant. His life itself was a mix of the major and minor key. Christ came humbly as we celebrate today and this evening and tomorrow. He came humbly as a babe, born into a, a poor family. Not, uh, he was of the line of David, but there was no throne room waiting for him. And then he lived a life of mockery, of rejection. The people spurned him. He was not in favor as a whole with the people, although sometimes the, he was, but other times found himself at their despising hand. Christ on the cross would have had psalms like this on his heart. And, and of course you know that he prayed on the cross as, as he, although he lived a perfect life, although he was the one who has always had favor with his father from before time, he went to the cross and died for the sins of his people. He was treated as if He was out of favor with God. He was treated as if God's anger had shut up his compassion. His wrath was now being poured out justly on what sin deserved, not on what Christ deserved. And Christ prayed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know that Christ was sinless. And so, for Christ to pray, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was not an unfaithful prayer. And certainly, the disciples might have looked on and said, Has God's steadfast love failed? Here's our Messiah, our Rabbi, our prophet, and he is dying at the hands of the Romans as people mock him. Has has God's promises come to an end for all time? We thought this was it. But we know that this was the exact moment when his promises were coming to fruition. This is when all the promises, that there will be a people, that he will send a son. He sent his son, and his son came and died, and he rose again. And is now seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling. And now the gospel, which means good news. It is good news because it does not offer pat answers or cliches. Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. It is good news because God is not afraid of questions like Psalm 77, 7 through 9. He's not taken aback by them. And he's not twiddling his thumbs, sort of nervous, thinking, how am I going to answer my people when they pray like this? And he has given us his son as the ultimate answer his son who experienced darkness and weight and wrestling in a way that we can never know. As he takes away the weight of guilt from us and as he gives us what we need in this life. And so we come to the answer. We've looked at the question and the questioners, but what's the answer? Because Psalm 77 doesn't end in verse 9. Uh, the psalmist uh, Asaph in, in verse uh, 10 through the rest of the psalm, he, he really answers his own question. Because, of course, we know the answer is no. God's steadfast love has not failed. Uh, this prayer of seven through nine, many call a, a, a lament. Um, and some definitions, I think, help us. A, a lament is a, I'll be quoting others here, uh, is the cry of distress that lays the foundation for the plea for help. Or it's a prayer of pain that leads to trust. Or it's the wailing of the heart before a God who hears. And so you see, there's always movement. The situation might not change, but there's a movement of the heart that comes in lament. Right? O come, O come, Emmanuel erupts into rejoice, O Israel. Rejoice. And the psalmist here says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I'll remember your wonders of old. And then he recounts all the things that God has done for his people in the exodus and onward, shepherding his people. He remembers who God is in his compassion. Or if you think of our weeping prophet Jeremiah, we said that it ends on that minor key, but right in the heart of Lamentations. Lamentations 3, you'll, you'll know these verses, I'm sure. He says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall." My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. There's the minor key, the the bitterness of this life. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore Therefore I will hope in him. Do you hear the minor and the major key in Jeremiah? He is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He is beaten down, but not destroyed. He is still going into exile. Jerusalem is still destroyed. But he says, This I call to mind the steadfast of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. So if you put these verses together, uh, has the steadfast love of the Lord forever ceased? The answer is no the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. What if the gospel was good like this? Uh, What if it was truly good news that wasn't shifting sand, but cement blocks that are sturdy, building a, a, a castle that we can run to and be safe? As we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, we celebrate the coming of steadfast love in the person of Jesus Christ. He came to his people to free them from their sins. He came as an answer to all the promises from Genesis 3:15 onward. And he also came that he might also that he might offer light and life, a true light which shines in the deepest darkness which walks with us even through the valley of the shadow of death. Martin Luther, one of the reformers, puts it this way, and we'll end on this thought. Whenever you are occupied in the matter of your salvation, setting aside all curious speculations of God's unsearchable majesty, run straight to the manger and embrace this infant, the virgin's little babe in your arms, And behold him as he was born, nursing, growing up, conversant among men, teaching, dying, rising again, ascending above all the heavens, and having power above all things. By this means you will be able to shake off all terrors and errors, like as the sun drives away the clouds. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, that it shows us what it means to truly wrestle, to pour out our hearts before you, and to find a God who hears us in Christ Jesus, who doesn't leave us in our struggles, but gives us strength and mercy and grace. I pray that you would show yourself anew to us even today. For those weary travelers and pilgrims, I pray that you would strengthen them, uphold them, Would you be with us the rest of this day as we fellowship, as we worship, as we celebrate Christ's coming? And may you be very glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' name.